Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Welcome to the jungle. We've got fun and games. We've got the things you need. We know the names. I thought we were doing the city. Yeah, we are. The urban jungle. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. And today we are starting a little bit of a new series where we're going to be talking about some game settings. Not like campaign setting like Faerun or Greyhawk or anything like that, but the places where your game takes place. Oh, the places you will travel. Uh, That could have been a good second consideration for today, but... Yeah, I still have to go with Guns N' Roses. I'm sorry. Oh, the places you'll go. Oh, the places you'll go. You are correct. Yes. But yeah, so we were kind of brainstorming. And one of the things that pop up that is a fairly large component with most campaigns, but yet is kind of underexplored is the random encounter. You know, whether your party's resting and something happens or your party's just mucking through an area and surprise random encounter, something random happens. And Ian and I decided to kind of break this down, and we're going to break this down by biome, because I think each biome has its own pack of surprises we can unpack and unload for our players. And with this, we kind of went a bit off kilter, but taking the urban environment as a biome, I think, is a good start. And so, as I said, we want to go through, discuss random encounters, how they're going to work, what kind of things your players might encounter. So it's not just the, the same, you roll some dice and, oh no, you get attacked by three skelly mans. Roll for initiative. Right, because so very often random encounter means combat encounter. And, you know, just going through our everyday lives, granted we don't have all of these magical beasties that are surrounding us in our everyday lives that try to eat people, but by and large, you don't run into life or death combat situations just out on the street. Right. They're generally a bit more benign. And I think the one random encounter that often gets left behind in most homebrew content is the beneficial random encounter. You know what? Sometimes you get a cookie. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you just run into that one person who's feeling particularly generous that day. Sometimes you find $20 laying on the ground, you know? Hey, hey. exactly. And so random encounters should be random they should not always be adversarial and so that is one of those things we kind of we wanted to break down and with each environment we're going to go through we're going to discuss what kind of groups we might find how to generate these kind of random encounters for your player so again it's not just the same rinse and repeat every session and we're going to go a little bit beyond just the random encounter too we're going to talk about the sort of stories that you can tell in each particular setting the sort of game styles that each particular setting might be better suited for things of that nature because there's so many games that just have that generic you're in the woods feel right and so there's a lot of variance that you can get just by changing up the scenery absolutely because the scenery is part of the story it is often unobtrusive in the background but when it is it there and important, it should actually be important. It should be something that actually has an impact on the story. And so that is something that I want us to explore a little bit and discuss and pull out some ideas on what we might be able to enhance in any particular scenario. Yeah, I like that. And this is one of the things that we've talked about with World Build with us and a couple of our other guests at various points. But that third pillar of, you know, D&D and tabletop gaming is that exploration. And again, it, it is very underutilized. And so just wandering around can be a good point for adventure by itself and can lead to other story hooks coming through, not necessarily always to point A to point B, but often, you know, the adventure is the journey itself. Right. So let's go ahead and get started. James, Alrighty. whenever you picture and TTRPG in a city, what sort of things stand out to you? What sort of things would you be looking for in an urban game? So for me, for an urban game, particularly with TTRPG, again, where things are very much D&D based, I'm going to be picturing probably early Victorian, late antiquity city, cobblestones, walled city gates, that kind of thing. This isn't necessarily something that has to be, again, if you want to go steampunk, if you want to go modern, 
if you want to do something like cyberpunk, urban is going to absolutely shine in these aspects. So I think along with setting your time frame is something important to picture. But again, it's going to be generally crowded. It's going to be dense. You're going to encounter a lot of various NPCs. There's going to be a lot for your players to do. There's going to be windows to look in, doors to check to see if they're locked or unlocked. There's going to be alleys. There's going to be paths. You're going to have huskers and buskers on the street. You're going to have con artists walking through. Um, You might have some form of city guard patrolling. There's just, again, it's going to be very lively and very vibrant. Right. And and one thing I do want to point out is that urban doesn't have to mean a city, per se. I mean, it can be that small village that your game starts off in at level one. You know, it's a place where civilization has taken hold. Yes, it is not the wild. It is specifically not the wilds. (laughs) So this could be something as simple as a little frontier town with half a dozen houses and a general store and like a station where carriages stop. So they have a couple of rooms to rent upstairs. They've got a little tavern downstairs where the travelers can stop and get refreshment on their way through. You know, that can be an urban environment just as much as the big city. And they're going to have some similarities, but they're also going to have very dynamically different vibes to them. I like that. So as you talk about, because again, when I think urban, I do think dense. But you talk about it not necessarily needing to be densely populated. The first two things that pop to mind is your, you know, anarchist commune syndicate who are elected by Moisten Bents. Either that or something like an Amish community where, again, it is rustic. It is rural still to a point, but yet there is still a thriving community. The land, again, is processed. It is farmed. And so it is not wild, but it's very tamed, very agrarian, agricultural. I would say less so your Amish example, because they are still separated as one family per farm. And so you have that sort of sprawl. I guess so. So you're thinking, okay. So you do still have to have a cluster of civilization. It's not enough to just have, you know, sparsely dropped farmhouses because that does get into more of a wilderness sort of situation. That is more of that transition between urban and wild. Okay, that's fair. I get that. So with that, the other thing I can think of is the old series of the Belgarid. And the main character growing up grew up on one of those. It was almost like a feudal farm, for the lack of better. But you had the landowner and the keeper of the farm. But then there was multiple families of farmers that lived on the property. And you had the smithy and, you know, the storehouses and all that. But they all kind of lived together. And they never say specifically how many people were on this farm. But from the description of the number of families, I would say it'd be at least 20 to 40. And that would be sort of the layout of the typical medieval European village. You know, you had all of the people living in their houses all sort of clustered together around the church. And then the fields would be arrayed around the village. And so in the morning, you would get up and you would head out into the fields to work. And then in the evening, whenever you were done, you came back into the village. Yeah. So that would be the most basic unit of this sort of urban environment. Right. But yes, most of the time you're going to have larger settlements. You're going to have from small towns up to major cities. And again, depending on what game you're playing, what sort of time frame you're looking at, a high Middle Ages European sort of setting is going to look very different compared to a 19th century Japanese environment is going to look very different to a modern small town USA. You know, those are going to be very different vibes, very different aspects that you're going to emphasize, but there are going to be similarities within them as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, I think the other one to go through is to look at something like Blade Runner, where you have that, you know, postmodern, very futuristic and very dense which again, if you're running like a cyberpunk or something like that, is a great inspiration for that kind of environment as well. Right. And if you wanted to continue on that sort of futuristic, a book that I read recently was uh, The Past is Red. And in that book, they're living on the Pacific garbage patch. Oh, nice. You know, the wealthy citizens of the world 
got in their spaceships and went to Mars and everyone else got left behind on Earth to scrounge out what living they could. And so now all of these people are living in garbage town is what they call it. It's on the Pacific garbage patch. Oh, that reminds me of it's a terrible movie. I say this now, but again, as far as an urban environment, that's futuristic. Something like Waterworld. That's kind of sounding a lot like that. Yeah, definitely has that feel, which again, I mean, still holds the same stuff that's going to come up. Still going to be the same. People are people wherever you go. Right. All right. So let's talk about a few of the aspects that you're going to run into in an urban environment. Okay. So first off, you're not going to have a whole lot of wildlife. And what wildlife you have is going to be specifically acclimated to be living around people. Right. Um, So you're going to have domesticated animals. So farm animals, dogs, cats. You're going to have vermin. So you're going to have like rats and pigeons. And you're going to have some of those more opportunistic type creatures. Yeah, absolutely. Again, too, if you're doing kind of a more not quite so dense, if you're kind of more like a farm, you might have some animals, but they're going to be domesticated animals. Like if a if a bull were to break out of a pen or something along those lines, or even if you have something like in Spain, you have the running of the bulls. Maybe a random encounter is there's some sort of festival going on and the animals just run amok. That could be an encounter dealing with animals, but most of your encounters are going to be with intelligent creatures, be they humanoid or other species. They are going to be the denizens of the environment. Right, yeah. Or depending on where this is located, people passing through. Yes. It would not be too far removed, especially if you're starting off an RPG, to have the game start in a town that is basically a waypoint between places. Yeah, I mean, those kinds of hubs are great because it does give your players a point to go back to and a point that's familiar while they're between quests. It's also a good way to have a reason for, you know, whatever story hook you have to come through your city. You're not in some backwater. You're not necessarily in a major city while there's no reason to leave or someone else can handle things. But those middle points do give a good reason for your players to travel. Yeah, you could set it up as a... Basically, they have a layover. Yeah. You know, they've come into this town and they're just waiting for the next coach that is going to take them on to the big city where they are heading towards. And so they have like three days that they have to kill in the interim before that carriage shows up. Or maybe, you know, they're waiting for the coach and the coach is late. And it, you know, it's like two days late and nobody knows where it is. And so they organize themselves to go and try and find it. Yeah, I mean, I like this as a setup because, again, it's the old trope, you know, everyone's in the tavern and something happens and, hey, look, you're a party now. And if you've not set up in a zero session why your players know each other, or even if you have, instead of everyone meeting at a tavern, you know what? You're stuck at the Greyhound station and your coach hasn't showed up yet. And then shit goes down. I don't know. To me, that's more exciting because you have something in mind or you're doing something already. You're all in a tavern. It's just, it's overdone. It's too easy. But yeah, being at a coach station is a perfect gathering point for your party. And then it hits the fan. Right. Because at that point, everybody has the same goal. Right. So you don't have to figure out why all of these people are going to be working together. They're working together because they all want the same thing. They all want the coach to show up so they can get where they're going. Right. You know, they're busy people with appointments to keep and they have to get to the city and it's too far to walk all the way there. They have to have this coach or otherwise they're not going to get there in time. Right. And so we can do this. I think kind of going through, if we want to build up random encounters, and this might be something we do later or we can do this episode, but I think this is a good time for a table so we can kind of break up like what kind of things we're going to meet. Is it going to be a political group? Is it going to be a person? Is it going to be wildlife? Is it going to be beneficial? Is it going to be negative? Could there be a side quest or a side story hooked into with all of this? And these are the things that kind of generate that randomness of the random encounter. Right. Because it could be that the coach was waylaid by bandits. It could be that a tree fell across the road and they couldn't get it through. It could be that a bridge washed out. You know, it could be that the driver got drunk and wandered off and you just don't know where he's at and you have to track him down. Right. It could be that the person who was driving this coach, who was supposed to be driving this coach, 
didn't get paid by his employer. And so he decided that he was just going to ditch the coach a day out of town and walk home. Another twist to that I was kind of thinking is maybe the driver of the coach was paid, but by someone else. And so they took the coach elsewhere to deliver cargo that shouldn't be. And now you've got, you know, a contraband smuggling campaign going. You know, there's a whole lot of things that you can do with that. Now, getting back a little bit more on topic, because we're starting to skew a little bit. In an urban setting, you're going to have a way to get around, I think is what we're getting at. Even if it's not within your urban environment locally, you're going to have a means of transport to get from that one to the next one, unless it's really tiny. Right. And even beyond that, even between towns, you might have transports like you might have rickshaws or cabs or things like this to just transport you within the town, depending on what kind of urban sprawl you have. Right. Or it might be something like a train, something like Final Fantasy. Or if you've like played Dwarf Fortress where you have multiple layers, maybe these are like lifts and elevators that are going to take you to various levels of this complex or the city. Right. Because, again, we're primarily talking about a fantasy setting. So it would not be too far removed to say that this is a city, say, built into a cliff face where you have tiers going up. And so you do have an elevator system to get from tier to tier. Especially if it was like a dwarven or a gnomish city, because again, they are going to have those earthworks built in. And so again, how you get around the city is an important world building aspect that you can use as fuel for storytelling. Absolutely. So I think going with this too, we have to remind ourselves because it's really easy to fall into the mental pattern that your encounters themselves are not always combat encounters. They can be points of role play. They can be a great time to do a skills check, either a persuasion check or a diplomacy check. Maybe, you know, randomly going through, there's an informant or someone who knows a little something, something or knows a person who knows a person that can give your party that little bit of extra information that can either shorten their journey or maybe make something difficult. Or maybe if they handle it poorly, maybe they make an enemy that makes whatever they have to do that much more difficult. Yeah. And that's another thing that you're going to get in an urban setting that you're not necessarily going to get in a rural setting or a wilderness setting is there's people. Yeah, there's going to be lots of people. And people have personalities. People have opinions. People have motivations. They have agendas. You know, so these are going to be ways that you can tie in literally anything. You can have five different people with five different goals. And depending on which person you talk to first will determine how likely you are to influence any one of these goals, whether it is to speed it towards its conclusion or to hinder it or to completely undermine it or just completely neglect something and then have something explode in the background five levels later. Right. And again, we've talked about this and other things too, talking about how NPCs are going to relate and react to your party members. And again, it has to do with that diplomacy and I'm forgetting the word, but they're not their alignment, but how they're demeanor going to react. Yeah, their demeanor. And if they're going to be friendly towards your party or negative, and it can be lots of things. It can be, they just don't like the way you look. Maybe the gnome walking through this town hates red and your party's wearing a red cloak and now your gnome absolutely hates your party member for whatever reason. Now that would Maybe be a minotaur. A, a minotaur, yes. <laughs> Maybe this gnome's walking through, and for whatever reason, your gnome is jealous of tall people. And so any of your character that's taller than six foot, so that's like your minotaurs and your goliaths and your half-orcs and things like that, is just going to be completely jealous of and not want to deal with because he's got Napoleon syndrome. So he might not act necessarily hostily, but he's not going to want to give information. Inversely, maybe they love tall people and now they are enamored and now you've got this little camp follower that's buddy-buddy and kind of like, hey, can I do this for you? Can I do this for you? I kind of think from the old movie Lethal Weapon, but Leo Gitz, you know, played by Joe Pesci. Kind of want just kind of help out because they were doing some uh, protective service for him. He was always like, hey, can I do this? Here's how to... And it was just randomly throwing out bits of information some that wound up being useful, some that just wound up being extraneous. But that kind of interaction, again, depending on how your party reacts, could be beneficial or negative. Right, yeah. And so when you get into urban environments, social encounters should be fairly common in your random encounters. And they should 
typically, unless you're going for this being a particularly rough part of town, they should typically not devolve to violence unless your party decides to go murder hobo. With that, I mean, just throwing out numbers, but if we're rolling a D12 or a D20, would you say probably two-thirds or three-quarters should be NPC to PC interactions, like person-to-person interaction? Um, I would say for like a D12 roll, I would say somewhere in the range of one to seven okay. would be social roles. I would only put like one combat roll yeah. on that whole chart. Yeah. Like, specifically, if they roll a one, that is where the combat happens. That's where you run into the gang of footpads that want to, you know, loot your corpses, as it were. Right. Or, you know, it could be a case of mistaken identity and somebody just really wants to punch you in the face. That could be. Again, depending on your time frame, too, or how dense your city. Pickpockets are a thing the world around, and they have been for a long time, and I'm sure they will be in the future. As long as there are pockets to be picked. Yep, and I could see that one depending, possibly dissolving into violence. The other thing, again, talking about this, and it would start off social, but having a con artist of some sort trying to work some sort of gimmick or game on a street corner or, you know, selling some sort of snake oil along those lines. And this could be another thing where using a demeanor system where, say, you roll 2d6 and the higher the roll, the more favorable the NPCs are towards you where they're only openly hostile if you roll a 2. If you roll snake eyes, and then on the opposite end, if you roll a 12, they are your best friend ever. But most everything is going to hit in that 6 to 7, right there in the middle. That's going to be your most common rolls, and that is going to be indifferent. Yeah, they are too busy to deal with you, so unless you've gotten in their way or helped them or benefited them, or hurt them in some direct fashion, they're just going to probably keep their head down and shuffle past. Yeah, Yeah. so I do love these kind of interactions. So let's brainstorm. So we said a 7 on a D12. So again, we've got just outright hostile. That would be 1, so combat. 2 would probably be, again, maybe like I said, a con artist. 3, maybe a busker performing for money, or someone begging for coin, uh, however you want to do that. That would probably, I mean, that's going to be fairly... Fairly common. A panhandler. That's what we want to go with. I would even go so far as to even abstract this more. Okay. So let's just say one, a one on the die is an openly hostile target. Okay. Two to three is somebody that the party has to work to avoid a negative outcome. Okay. Four to five would be, say, you know, a completely benign, indifferent, no real chance of gaining or losing too much. So it's just sort of a truly random encounter, you know, just running into somebody on the street. Okay. Um, A five would be the chance to pick up something if they succeed on whatever checks they engage in. A seven would be an almost guaranteed social benefit to the party. Uh, Something where they would get a benefit as long as they don't botch it. Yeah. So like the party's reputation precedes them and this person wants to help the party out. Or again, they were sent with a message or some sort of benefit for the party. Hey, you want to go here? Hey, go to the stall and say so-and-so sent you and they'll give you a deal, that kind of thing. Yeah. It could be a crier out on the street handing out pamphlets for the new magic item shop that has opened up around the corner. You know, they're, yeah, they're, maybe they're trying, they're, they're literally handing out flyers, you know, 10% off your first purchase. Yeah, that'd be great. And honestly, when you come to magic items, that's nothing to sneeze at sometimes. Right. No, I, I love that. And that feels like a random encounter. I've, those that have walked through like a large city, something like New York or Frisco or LA. Yeah, you just get those random guys flipping cards at you sometimes. And it's like, oh, that looks interesting. Go there. Maybe there's an event or a show. Again, thinking about like the card flippers and you go to the show. And if they decide to go to that show as a side thing, because it's a random encounter, you can use that as a hook for something happens at the show and start a whole link of side quests there. So if you're in that weird, like you're homebrewing and your party's just finished one adventure hook and you're not sure how to start the next one, these side quests or these kind of random encounters that lead to side quests are a great way to bridge that gap. Right, And it also breaks up the monotony of 
trying to save the world. Yeah. You know, it gives a little lighthearted moment. It gives a bit of change of pace that allows the players to unwind. Yeah. Never mind the characters. The players themselves need a chance to have some lighthearted fun too. Right. And that is one thing with the psychology of being a DM is while those moments of stress and excitement are great, you can't keep that level high all the time without fatiguing your players and burning them out. So you do have to kind of raise and lower the volume from time to time. Right. Okay. So let's finish out this D12 table. Okay. So we've got uh, one through seven done. Okay. I think that the next few, let's say eight, nine, ten, are going to be exploration sort of things. Okay. So the first one would be, say, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so something is going down and you have to work the situation to avoid being either involved in it or framed for it. Okay. So like you're walking through town and someone's looting the general store and they bust out and they bump into you. And as they bump into you, they accidentally or purposefully drop a couple items or sacks of items they leave at your feet and go running off as the town guard approaches. And so now you're sitting outside of said store. You've got angry merchants screaming thief. And there you are with stuff that's obviously not yours right at your feet. Right. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean that right there. That's a whole story hook right there in itself. I love it. Trying to think of some other wrong place, wrong time type things. I mean, you came up with one, you know, coming around a corner and there's some festival going on where they have a running of the bulls. You know, yeah. if you don't know that is going to be happening or, you know, like one of these towns where they have the big bicycle races or, you know, any downtown USA where they happen to have a 5K or a marathon on a Saturday morning and you just oh, come around just running. Yeah. And you just come around the corner and there's 500 people running towards you. <laughs> what do you do? No, that's a great. That would be hilarious. I'd love to see a group of players like Okay, you're walking down the street, it's quiet. You hear the murmurs of crowds. You ha- hear something coming, kind of building up. You get this feeling that something's behind you. And as you turn and look, you see 20 people running full steam dead for you. What do you do? And it's like, yeah, just throw your party right in that and like, how about you? Just sit back and yeah, that that's a great one. I love it. So the next one, let's say it is a getting lost sort of thing, whether it is you know, you are trying to get from point A to point B and you get lost on the way or you decide to go wandering and explore the town. Just the whole thing surrounding it happens to be around not knowing where you're going to end up. No, I really like this one, too. And again, in an urban environment, it doesn't fit as well, but a nature check or a survival check, just so you know, your do you know which direction north is? That is a check that is underutilized. And I think being able to know where you at in time and place is important. And that is one of the few places that the 5e ranger does shine and no one ever uses the check. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of rangers and urban settings, we did make an urban ranger. It's available on our Patreon. So if all of this sounds like something that you'd be interested in, you should go check that out. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So what are we going to do for our last two? We've got we've got 11 and 12 to knock out still. We've got 10, 11 and 12 to knock out oh, still. 10, 11 and 12. Okay. So let's say 10 is going to be, you are looking for a specific place and you find a place that will serve for what you're looking for. Okay. So you're finding that higher end blacksmith or that magical weapon shops, or maybe, you know, the potion slash scroll vendor. Or, you know, you're hungry and you find a place that's serving food. Food. Oh, yeah, that is a, I yes. mean, that is, Absolutely. that is a very common one. Yeah. You know, you're walking through town and then you just smell something that smells really, really good. And you follow your nose to this little hole in the wall where they're serving just the most amazing food ever. Oh my God, I love street food vendors. Why did I not think of this first? That's amazing. And honestly, going tying this within, this kind of leads back into your social interactions. But a street food vendor, they're going to see a lot of people. They're going to know a lot of stuff, particularly they are going to have their thumb on the pulse of the streets. And so depending on how your players interact, how they do things, they could probably get some very good information about whatever they're looking for from said vendor. 
Yeah, or at least they will get directions to somebody who can tell them the things that they need. Unless they flub the rules, in which case they're going completely the opposite direction, which is also a possibility. Yeah, or they're just not going to get anything and then they're back at square one. Um, right. That tends to be the default whenever you flub a social interaction in the real world. You know, Yeah, <laughs> you get nothing, good day. You get nothing, you lose, good day, sir. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I love the finding of like a street food vendor. That makes me happy. Best funnel cakes around. There's this one spot that I used to go to all the time when I was at UVA called Marco and Luca's. It's this little dumpling shop where you could get an order of six dumplings for like three bucks. Oh, nice. And they were just the most amazing things ever. But they were in this little tiny storefront down an alley that you had to know it was there or otherwise you have no idea that you can get this stuff there. That's great. That reminds me, I had an aunt that lived in DC for a while. I had an uncle who was a colonel in the Air Force when they were married. And her favorite thing to, to ask people is, do you know what's in the center of the Pentagon? Apparently it was a hot dog stand. Yes. So yeah, because I mean, everyone could get to it, but that is that is a perfect location for that kind of thing. And you're going through the fortress and there's a food vendor in the fortress because they're going to get hungry. Yep. Yeah, my brother-in-law worked at the Pentagon for several years, and he told me about the hot dog stand at the center of the Pentagon. That's just the best best business <laughs> location ever. I love it. I got all the secrets. And yeah, absolutely. For me, I would totally have, if there was said food vendor in the middle of the barracks or the fortress, that would absolutely be a spy master or someone who worked closely with a spy master of some sort, because again, they are going to hear everything. Right. But it would be something where you would have to really work to be able to get anything from them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You're not going to get those for free. Yeah, this isn't one of those things where you're just going to walk up and be buddy-buddy with this NPC. And within three minutes of table time, you're going to be able to get secrets out of him. No, 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 no. No, but maybe if you can find some ingredients and run a couple favors. And that's the other thing, too, is with all of these NPCs, as we said... They can lead to other side quests and they can be a short little fetch quest or they can link into larger stories. Right. All right. We got two more. We got 11 and 12 on this die. So I'm thinking 11 would absolutely be some sort of animal encounter. I was thinking that too. A hostile animal or a lost pet or something that's out of place but absolutely some sort of animal encounter because it's not impossible to happen in an urban setting. It's just less likely. Yeah. And it's not necessarily, it shouldn't be always a combat animal encounter either. And by animal, this could be a beast or this could be a monstrosity. This could be a dragon. This could be an ooze. This This could be any number of things Basically, this is anything that is not a person. Non-humanoid. <laughs> yeah. Any, anything that's not people, that would fall under this category. Yeah, no, I like that. And again, that can be, hey, you found a cat and you want to pet the kitty for a couple seconds and maybe it follows you for a bit and that's it. Again, maybe it's got a name tag on it and it belongs to someone in the noble district or a known smith or a known merchant and you have to return their pet because heaven forbid their cat or their dog somehow get out and they would be thankful for the return. Maybe it is a pack of vermin that come out and the vermin are escaping something. And so while they're running in a panic, they're running past your party, not necessarily attacking your party. Your party's just in the way. And that's a clue of some bigger thing going on behind whatever is scaring out these vermin. Perhaps the vermin are fleeing and then you go back and maybe there is a hatchling, a wormling hatchling of some sort that's just spreading fire, breathing fire as it can, because why not? And it's freaking these vermin out and they're fleeing, or maybe there's a flood or something that they're fleeing. But this could also be something like there's a carnival, you know, there's a circus that has come in. And so they have, you know, animals that are coming in to be part of the circus acts. And so Again, it's not combat because these are all domesticated or these are all tamed animals. They're not necessarily domesticated because tamed and domesticated are two very different things. Very much. Or say they see the puppy. They want to pet the puppy. I'm going to pet that dog. I pet that dog. (laughs) And the puppy is a blink dog. And so they go to pet the puppy and the puppy blinks away. Okay. But the puppy is, you can still see it. It can only blink like 10 feet at a time. Just far enough. Just far enough. 
And, yes, I love it. And so now they are invested. They are going to pet this dog. That's right. <laughs> I'm going to pet that dog. I'm going to boop it snoot. <laughs> and so it becomes a thing of they're trying to catch this blink dog puppy because they want to pet it. And what sort of trouble do they find themselves in following this dog? Yeah, I love it. Maybe the dog's being playful. Maybe the dog is trained to lure people into something where, again, maybe you get surrounded and you are getting mugged or robbed or extorted somehow. Going back to the circus idea, I really like this too, because you have all of these animals coming in and maybe something like a rhino or an elephant or a bear or a large bull gets loose and it's panicked. And so your party is going to try to capture or corral or animal check this animal. But if they get it safely without injuring the animal, they are going to earn the favor of the people handling the animals and running the circus versus if they attack it and or kill it, then they're going to earn the ire of these people because now you've damaged their show and their property. Right. And if we're talking about a D&D sort of game, don't make them all just mundane animals. Throw a basilisk in there. Throw a behir in there. (laughs) <laughs> no, throw in an iron keg, you know, throw in these other creatures, take some inspiration from the beginning of Critical Role Campaign 2. They had a frog hemoth as part of the show, and it became a very important plot point in the show in the very early stages in that very first arc of the campaign. Right. And you have to think if you're going to have a carnival and these people are coming to see the carnival, they're not coming for stuff they can see anywhere any given day. They're coming to see, you know, the oddities from the far realms. And you've got multiple planes of existence within D&D. You can just grab whatever you want from. And so, yeah, I mean, okay, here's a 50 foot crocodile. Cool. Here's an ancient dinosaur. Better. Here's an outsider. Dude, I'm in. Take my money. Yep, we're there. Yeah, the aboleth in a tank, you know, stuff like that. And at the risk of sounding, of getting that sort of colonialist vibe going on, this would be a great way to introduce some of the more, quote unquote, monstrous humanoid races into your games. So, you know, races that typically would not be found in a civilized society so things like your goblinoids so goblins hobgoblins and bugbears yeah things like gnolls things like kobolds things like kuatoa you know yeah sahagen you know races like that where they are traditionally vilified in the game this would be a great way to bring them in they have that flair i want to be careful not to fetishize this right because it'll be very easy to do and it's one of the big problems with like the freak shows and the old circuses yeah i was going to reference that so yeah pt barnum had all kinds of issues but that said that kind of show and that kind of carnival goes back to roman times so i mean it's something that's happened forever and yeah that would be a great way even to start a party If they're not all at the U-Haul station, maybe they all came in with this traveling carnival now because they are of various races that are not your player's handbook standard. Right. Yeah. That would be a great way if you wanted to do a monstrous race campaign. Again, if you are going to do that kind of scenario, though, this is one of those things that you are going to be aware of your players. One of the things you want to discuss in a session zero Or if you're kind of working this in midway to make sure you are not going to step on toes or offend any of your players. Because again, this can get squeaky kind of fast if it's done improperly. Right. Again, this is where Session Zero really comes into play. Because if you want to have that vibe where you're playing monstrous races and these monstrous races are viewed as inferior to the civilized folk and they're having to deal with all of that prejudice. As long as everybody sitting at the table is on board with that and you're, you know, this is a private home game, run with it. You know, if that is something that everybody is okay with, but you have to make sure that everybody is okay with that and you have to do your best to avoid the negative stereotypes, the negative attributes of such. You don't want to just have it be an othering. Yeah, be socially aware. It can be difficult, but it can be done properly. Anyway, we got real heavy right there. Let's yeah, let's, back, let's back up just a minute. So we've got one last thing on our list. This is absolutely, you find something beneficial. Yeah. 
you find a pouch of gold, you find a magic ring laying on the thing. You check your cloak at the show or the club or the tavern and they give you back the wrong one. And now it's a plus one cloak of natural armor or something like that. A cape of the mountebank. Yes, definitely something beneficial. That one piece of information your party really, really needs. An informant runs up and says, hey, I've got this, you know, or that one thing they need and someone's able to pull up with it immediately. Or, you know, you got somebody who is just in dire need of a lesser restoration. You know, somebody yeah. who has contracted some disease or been afflicted with some poison that they can't shake or, you know, has been stricken blind magically and they need that magical healing. You just swing around the corner and you run into this priest who's just yeah, out exactly. on the street, you know, doing his sermon. He just wraps up his sermon and he's or maybe they're just hitting the fever pitch of their sermon and they decide that they're going to go and lay on hands and they just yeah. grab that person out and they happen to be a level one paladin and they just lay on hands literally <laughs> and they pump that f- and, and they <laughs> pump that five hit points worth of healing in there and they cast lesser restoration and cure whatever it is that your party member has. Yeah, no, that's great. I love that. Or, you know, again, you come across just those, you know, I love the idea of, you know, a priest doing good stuff for once or i I know or a a priest being altruistic you know yes doing something without expecting reward right because you know you get that in a lot of these especially the lawful good deities in the DD setting a lot of them are supposed to have that altruistic element to their teachings but you rarely see that being practiced Yeah, and again, I think a lot of cynicism kind of bleeds through in some games, and I know that is an issue that kind of bleeds through in mind from time to time. But yeah, I mean, that is great to find some good altruism. Again, the random thing, maybe your party walks into a, again, a venue or an inn or something, and they win some sort of door prize. Like, again, talking about that merchant's grand opening, you're going through and you walk in and you're the hundredth people to walk through the door, and now you get so much gold on a spending spree and here you can buy whatever you know this much gold and just pay the difference of whatever you're buying would be a fun way to do that yeah and i really liked your coat check example that you brought up because you know you come in you hand off your cloak and whenever you're going to leave at the night you hand them your ticket and the cloak that they bring you back out is not yours but you know you handed them a mundane cloak and they're handing you a magical one Now that puts that player into a scenario where they have to make decisions. Are they going to say something? Are they going to tell the person that, no, this is the wrong cloak? It's awfully shiny. And it's very warm. (laughs) If they decide to keep it, what happens then? Oh, yeah. Because the person who owns that cloak is going to want it back. And they're going to try and find out where it went, whether it is the owner or whether it is the venue owner, whether it is both. You know, we have two separate groups searching for you separately, independently, but both searching for you for the same thing. You know, are they going to realize that they have gotten the wrong cloak? You know, maybe they were inebriated and they didn't realize until the next morning that it's the wrong cloak. And so now they have to make the decision, am I just going to keep it or am I going to try and find the owner and return it? Those sorts of things. I like this too, because if you do a cloak check, then you know, you're going to have like your name and some contact information pinned to the inside. And so if they're going to be looking for you, that's how they're going to start trying to track you down. Hey, we found you at this and this inn. And now again, depending on how you want to do this, but you could do this at like level one or level two and have this a continuing thing of being hounded by this person trying to get their cloak back for whatever reason for multiple levels through would be a fun kind of thread to run through a story. These random encounters have the potential to be like that weird NPC that for whatever reason, the party gloms onto that part of the story that nobody expects that really makes the game shine. Right. Your Mr. Whiskers moment. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Whiskers, my wife. (laughs) For those of you playing along at home that don't know about the Mr. Whiskers thing. So I was running a game where the party started in a city and they had a random encounter on their way out of town to go on their adventure where one of them was approached by this man dressed in that stereotypical robe and wizard's hat, the blue robe and wizard's hat with the stars all over it, asking for help to find his cat, Mr. Whiskers. 
Mr. Whiskers being a Grimalkin who appeared again later in the game. See, he never specifically said it was a cat at the point. He just said, hey, will you help me find Mr. Whiskers? And given the mood of the table at that time, we took that completely the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah, it, it wasn't the first. It was the first time you took something completely the wrong direction, but it was not the last time. <laughs> Absolutely. In that campaign. <laughs> but yeah, so that's what I'm talking about with Mr. Whiskers. Yeah. And so I would definitely come up with some ideas for what sort of things you might want to have, depending on what you would roll on one of these checks. Maybe pull up one of the various adjective generators online. And so whenever you make your roll, you generate a random adjective as an inspiration to give you an idea of what sort of details you need to encounter because you have the general outline with the number that you rolled. And then this gives you a flavor to run with. Absolutely. I think one person that deals with this really well, forgive me if I get the name wrong, is it Jack with Tales of the Manticore? John. John with Tales of the Manticore. And he's got several of these modules that basically do this thing where you have an adjective and a word and he helps you kind of generate random scenarios for these things. And they can be extremely useful and a lot of fun to work with. And I think we're kind of slowly ranging on that for what we're talking about is this is a solid way to generate those types of situations if you are hunting for ideas. Yeah. And if you end up having a bigger city, expand your table from a D12 roll to a D20 roll. If it's a smaller city, shrink it down from a D12 to a D10. You know, the bigger the city, the more options you should have. Absolutely. And so you're going to have various human elements throughout this city. You're going to have various infrastructure elements throughout the city that you can interact with that you can be affected by maybe you're on your way from one part of town to another part of town for a meeting and you get to the river and the drawbridge is up because there's a boat coming through the canal and so you have to wait for that to go down or you need to find another way around or you know you got to make those sorts of decisions and these sorts of things should not always be life or death threats. Yeah, absolutely not. No. Inconveniences should be common on this list. <laughs> yes, very much so. And levity is a great thing if you can offer levity in such thing. And again, that will help kind of that some of that downtime, especially if your party's coming off some high energy stuff. Uh, levity goes a long, long way. Yeah, don't make everything, you know, oh, you end up going down this alley and now you're getting jumped by six thugs. You know, that sort of thing isn't common. Right. That should be an exception, not a rule. And just because this is, especially in D&D, a combat-driven game most of the time, this is a great way to use the other big chunks of the character sheet. You know, use your skill checks for this sort of stuff. Right, absolutely. No, I agree with that 1,000%. All right. I think we have rambled on for a good long while. And uh, Yeah, no, I think we have some good stuff. I think if we have some time, we should put this table down on paper so we have something feasible to run with and something physical. But this has a lot of potential, I believe. Yeah. So thank you all for joining us tonight. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, send us an email under commentaste at gmail.com or join our Discord and chat with us directly. You can find a link to the Discord in our show notes. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Twitch, Mastodon, and Blue Sky. We're at under common taste on all of those. Come and check us out. We are on Patreon, patreon.com slash under common taste. That's where our write-ups go. I finally have a write-up up. Woohoo! I got the counterflits done. I'm almost done with the free version of our poison crafting guide. Excellent. I've gotten the first draft done. It's going into uh, revisions and edits right now. There's also going to be a patron version that is going to have tables with ingredients. It's going to have stuff that you can harvest from creatures from the various published books, specifically from the Monster Manual, but it's also going to have stuff from Volos and Mordenkainen's in it, and maybe be able to expand that a little bit further out. But yeah, so that is something that's going to go up onto Patreon for patrons whenever I get done with it, and hopefully whenever I get done with that, it's also going to go into our itch store. So undercommontaste.itch.io, that's where you can find our Liminal Horror Adventure Beneath the Lake, and my solo RPG, Forever Home, which is still in the Solo But Not Alone 4 bundle, which is 
still open until I believe March 9th. Excellent. I think March 9th is the last day that is open. Last I looked, they were at about 77%. That was about a week ago, so they may have hit it by now. I don't know. I probably should have checked that before we started recording. But head on over there, pick up that bundle. It's $10 base price. You can pay more if you want. It is a fundraiser for the mental health awareness charity Take This. So great charity, great cause. Go pick that up. It's 124 games. So, And I've been solely working through all of them. I've gotten through, I believe, the first four. I really need to pick up my pace. But I've been doing reviews of all of them as I finish them and putting them up on TikTok. So go and check those out as well. If this is your first time listening to us, thank you. We're so glad you found us. As always, you can find our other podcasts wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on Apple, iHeartRadio, Google, iTunes, Spotify. Give us a rate and review. This helps increase our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of. Stay safe, everyone. We will see you in two weeks. We may actually have a live stream interview on Friday, March 1st. We're still waiting to get confirmation on that at time of recording. Hey everybody, Ian here in post-production, just to confirm that yes, we are in fact going to be having an interview on Friday, March 1st at 9pm Eastern, 6pm Pacific. We're going to be interviewing Josh from Lone Colossus Games, who brought you Injuries and Vile Deeds, going to be coming back to talk about his new project that's getting ready to launch on Backerkit, The Tome of Intangible Treasures. So, it's a book about magic items and we're real excited to dig into that and talk to him about that so come over and join us again friday march 1st at 9 p.m eastern twitch.tv slash undercommon taste stay safe everyone and we will see you all in two weeks happy gaming thanks for joining us for another episode of undercommon taste our theme song is massacre Anne, written and performed by mary kroll and used with permission you can find Mary online at marycroll.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycroll. Our logo is by David Sutherland. You can find more of David's work on deviantart.com slash David Sutherland or on instagram.com slash willx underscore 73. We'll be back in two weeks, so stay safe and we'll see you then.